another composer I've worked with often says, there is one character in your opera that doesn't show up until opening night, and that's the audience. I mean, that's the other piece of the collaboration. When I was a presenter and producer, I used to always talk about that there's a multi-layered contract from creator to interpreter to audience, and everybody has to actively participate to make a work come to life. Last season on Key Change, we introduced you to Opera for All Voices. Seven opera companies working together, resulting in four commissions, two workshops right around the corner. But what all is this? Is it just about music and words? No, we have to dig a little deeper. Opera for All Voices. What were we thinking? We were thinking grand. How many stories are there? Too many to count. Can you change the world through opera? Can we truly represent all voices in opera? All voices? That's a lot. How many more seats do we need to add to the table? We're going to need a bigger table. I'm Brandon Neal with the Santa Fe Opera. And I'm Andrea Fellows-Walters with the Santa Fe Opera. And this is Key Change, a podcast taking you inside opera for all voices. An initiative that began with commissioning and presenting new work, but has grown into something different. This season, we take a deeper dive and discuss the topics and questions that are shaping the future of opera in America. In this episode of Key Change, we go back to Postville, hometown to the world. Laura Kaminsky and Kimberly Reed's commission for Opera for All Voices. We also reconnect with Ruth Knott and Kip Crana from San Francisco Opera, whom you'll remember from season one. So, Andrea, we had a second workshop, right? <laughs> yes, and San Francisco hosted it, which was awesome. Yeah. How was it? It was really wonderful. I feel like I'm on Top Chef and I don't know how to describe food. You know, when they're like interviewing contestants uh-huh. and they have to talk about the food and they're like, mm, it's yummy. Mm. I feel like that's what I'm talking right now. Like, it was wonderful. It was great. At least you're not having a Gordon Ramsay impression where you're like cursing, cursing and, and throwing things. And throwing food at but people. He's sexy. He probably going to do an impression. Okay, okay. so. <laughs> back, back to. Okay, so it was really great. I didn't know what to expect because we're usually the people who are putting it together. Right. And I like things to be a certain way. Yeah. And of course, San Francisco, they're awesome. They know what they're doing. Of and course. so all the rehearsals were set up. They put together a wonderful team of artists, the music director, the two rehearsal pianists. Laura's scores are not easy. No. And her piano reductions are still very complex, and there's a lot of nuances. Very condensed, right? And because of the way Laura writes, and she uses percussion so masterfully, they had to have two pianists, basically, one representing the percussive world mm-hmm. of hometown to the world and one representing the rest of the orchestra on the piano. And those two artists, they shared those responsibilities and they were really facile artists. And getting to know the singers from the Adler program at San Francisco and seeing the Young Artist program and seeing them in action was really reassuring. But being able to sit back and not have to worry about the logistics and mm-hmm. like what's happening next and when's the break and is everyone being taken care of and you know, care and feeding as I like to talk Which is about. hard because we're control freaks. And we care. Yeah, well, so, and we're control freaks. But then to sit there with the score and follow along and, and make notes and talk with Kip and Ruth, I think that I'd like to do more of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's the hope for all of our commissions is for them to travel to other places and and, and have other have people us. work with us. Exactly. And I think we've had that experience with the libretto workshops as well. Oh, 100%. And out of this has grown a title change. Again. <laughs> Again. <laughs> I think that's one of the hallmarks of season two of Key so, Change. So, lots of title changes. Right. So what is Postville now? So it was Postville colon hometown to the world. Now it's Hometown to the world. 
I don't know if our listeners, we've told them that Postville is a real place, Postville, Iowa. Right. And as you drive into Postville, Iowa, there's a billboard with the city motto. And the city motto is... Hometown to the world. Hometown to the world. Kim and Laura, you might just say a little bit about uh, your decision to slightly alter the title of this piece we're working on. You know, I thought it was um, a better, more abstract title because it referred to this idea of this community that was trying to create a hometown to the world, that was trying to create this sense of humanism. And I didn't want to limit it to just this one place to keep that idea a little bit more open so that it wouldn't be just this one locale that was able to accomplish this. I think it's this idea that we could all learn from. Yeah, I I think it was important for us to root the story in the actual historic event of the Immigration and Customs Enforcement raid that took place in Postville, Iowa. And so there's specificity about that in the opera, but we're not doing a bio-documentary type piece about the facts of Postville. It's much more symbolic. So that Postville did, maybe still does, style itself as hometown to the world? They still do. And it's actually, it's literally what it says on the sign when you come into town. I also like the title because I think if we do our job right with this piece, that the piece itself will be hometown to the world. It won't just uh, be the story about Postville. Yeah, because everybody a landing place. And I think what was so wonderful in the way Kim crafted the libretto was that the political backdrop and the event of the raid is in the past. Mm -hmm. So the story plays out in the interactions of these three individuals in the community, and they represent their own personal issues and lives but they're symbolically representing some of the concerns in our global society and how we do and don't work. Well, and the collateral damage of those actions that people think are so necessary that you can't anticipate. One of the things I'd love to hear you uh, talk about, you creators, is the evolution of this piece. You workshopped this in Cincinnati with a very talented group of performers there in December. And now we're doing another workshop with more talented people, all different people. But the piece has evolved from when it first was on paper and after the uh, Cincinnati experience and even now. Can you talk a little bit about that process? First of all, dramaturgically, we made some really big moves and there was kind of a false summit and a plateau that was happening about three quarters of the way through the piece. And for a shorter piece like this, which is coming in in about an hour, it just made sense to not take that false summit to just keep going straight to this very furious in some ways and very beautiful synthesis of the ethnicities, the cultures, the religions, the languages of these three main groups of people who exist in Postville and who are represented in Hometown to the World, that we just didn't want to delay that any longer. So, yeah, we decided to combine a couple scenes and get out of our own way. Yeah, I mean, I think what was so fortuitous, because originally we weren't planning to have this workshop in Cincinnati. And when they offered it to us, it was earlier than when the piece was to be delivered to Offer for All Voices. So we asked if we could workshop those scenes that were ready to help us get a sense. And that was what made it easy for Kim to see 
how to distill from what hadn't yet been set to music, what was redundant and what was that false summit and what would create a through line, you know, straight through to the end. And in that, we came up with a new scene that fleshed out one character more deeply from the human emotional rather than the place in the social structure of the piece of Linda Morales. And there was one line, Kim, that is in that lyric, which to me perfected the libretto, which is when she sings, she sings to America and she sings America. America is impossible. And you think that's what she's going to say as an undocumented immigrant worker who's been allowed to stay, whose husband and son were deported, living in this terrible situation. But what she says is, America is impossible without us. And when I read that, it was like, that's it. That's the essence of this piece. We all together have to find a way to give each other space to build this society, this country, to make it work because it can. And when I read that line, I mean, I just completely fell apart. It's like, that's it. And it's such a testament to the workshop process because without testing it and, you know, really seeing where things are working and when they're not working, where we, we can improve them. I mean, I really think that that aria, that that's going to be the one that people are, mm. end up thinking about and remembering on their way out the door. I hope there's more than that, but yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a good start. <laughs> Let me just give my own perspective after um, listening to the discussions in Cincinnati. Obviously, one of the big picture things that uh, creators grapple with is the overall dramatic arc and where the climax is and how resolution happens and the whole pacing of that. I know one of our discussions in Cincinnati that ultimately resulted in the changes you just discussed was this whole question about the big conflict. I won't give away too much, but to say that there is a, a big essential conflict that breaks out between two of the characters, a real sort of uh, climax of bitterness, then with the help of some music, a reconciliation. And this leads ultimately to a spiritual scene in which all three of the main characters are essentially praying and calling on their own spiritual guidance to find peace, to find a, a solution, to repair the world, as Kim has said. And I know we had this discussion about whether does the reconciliation lead to the prayer or does the prayer lead to the reconciliation? And there was a lot of diversity of opinion on that question. I'd love you to, for you to talk a little bit about how you ultimately came up with something. I'm going to answer quickly and then I'm going to let you answer because I think that's a really personal mm. question in a way. I think for those who have faith, the prayer will lead to the reconciliation. And for those who don't, they need to pray, mm. not necessarily religiously, but it's that that hope for the better world. So I actually think it's both. Like, I'm not a religious person, but I'm a spiritual person. And those prayers are not things that I would say or sing or need, but I pray as a human being for a better world, for me to be a better person. Well, especially for you, Kip, to be a better person. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, I need all the help I can yeah, get. Yeah, <laughs> well, and I pray for you every day. But that circumstance makes you pray, and then prayer makes you pay attention to circumstance. It's like a 
Moby is strip. Yeah, you know, that's yeah. my response. Mm-hmm. It may be different. I mean, Kim crafted this. So I mean, I that's think just you, my personal response. I think you said that extremely well because I th- think they do work off of each other and they inform each other. And some people are led to reconciliation from prayer and some people find it the other way around. And I think that what I was trying to get at with that lyric, which ultimately is about handing that reconciliation over to the music instead of the mm-hmm. way it's really resolving in text. But with that said, we wanted to be able to achieve that reconciliation through both of those means. And Laura's music does that beautifully. Are you saying that you're inviting the audience to make their own decision about that too? I mean, is that like one of those things that's left to the experience of the person who's watching and hearing it at that moment? I mean, I think that ultimately what the ethos of the piece is celebrating is a secular humanism Mm -hmm. that does not exclude religion, but is also not dependent on religious. Well, that's like their place to go in is mm-hmm. right. The, is the sacred world. And from that, we find the thing that is universal. Exactly. Exactly. And there's, you know, I mean, the tradition and history of music is in many right. ways a religious history. So that can't be ignored. But I think that what happened in Postville, the humanism that they discovered messy humanism with a bunch of different Uh people coming from a bunch of different angles and a bunch of different religions. What they found was just a way to respect the basic humanity of these other people that were around them and to respect the differences between them, including religious differences. So it's out of that respect for that difference that we tried to leave plenty of room for this secular humanism mm-hmm. to develop through the through that final piece, which is called Repair the World, right. which is a very important... I mean, I live in New York. I have a lot of friends who are, who are secular Jews. And it seems like every single friend who comes from that tradition, I've had these conversations with this wonderful phrase, tikkun olam, which just means repair the world. And that phrase as something that a lot of people I know who are secular Jews respond to and take that as their direction every day to wake up and to promise to repair the world is something that could have religious implications or it could also just be completely secular. I'm wondering about your thoughts as an education director here at San Francisco Opera, where a piece like this fits in your mission and your programming ideals. Oh, wow. Yeah. So this is the first time I've ever been involved in commissioning an opera. And wow, I mean, this has been incredible. There's so many different topic areas to dive into with a piece like this and imagine that it's just an hour long. You know, we've had times where a libretto draft was due and then we would all confer and offer advice. And the time in Cincinnati was a great time that we all had time in person and together. And I just have to tell the audience (laughs) and thank you both Laura and Kim, for your incredible willingness to listen. And it's not like we went and said, oh, you need to take all these things away and do these other things. But we just said, you know, certain aspects that we were looking for, like Kip was talking about, to clear up the climax of the story and have that and that resolution. But you're the ones who found the magical way to do that. 
and it really is coming through now that we're reading through the whole piece. And what a dream. I mean, it's just been a real pleasure to work with What's What's our next project, Kim? Yeah. <laughs> we should like pitch it right now, right? Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Audience, yeah, are you listening? Is, though, right? <laughs> well, I think, you know, was one of the questions we had in the very beginning when we were looking for the artist commission to launch this initiative was, are you willing to give yourselves over to a workshop process that really is less about presentation and celebrating, look what we've done, which absolutely celebrate, look what you've done, but really was about working. And you said yes, and thank you for, yes. for trusting us in, in that process. It's the best thing about these collaborative art forms. And Kip has had many experiences with commissions. Um, sure. I was thinking about this earlier today because I knew that question might be coming. <laughs> and uh, the very first commission I worked on was back in the mid-1980s and was Hugo Weisgall's opera Esther with a libretto by Charles Kondek, which we ultimately did not perform, although we w workshopped it uh, twice. And ultimately, the piece was done at New York City Opera instead. I've worked on more than 20 operas in my career that have seen the light of day, but there are quite a few others that either never got to the stage or, or did so elsewhere. And what's been interesting about this is the wide variety of collaborative styles that composers and librettists mm. have had, and sometimes the stage directors involved as well. Some on the extreme end say, well, this is what I wrote, take it or leave it. And others, like present company, are very willing to uh, let ideas bounce around and uh, to take what you think is worth working with and discard the rest. I think it's very important for the ultimate strength of a piece because, as another composer I've worked with often says, there is one character in your opera that doesn't show up until opening night, and that's the audience. Yep. Mm -hmm. And uh, so as much feedback you have from potential audience-type people in the process, the better off you are. I mean, that's the other piece of the collaboration. When I was a presenter and producer, I used to always talk about that there's a multi-layered contract from creator to interpreter to audience, and everybody has to actively participate to make a work come to life. That is one of the magical things about opera. When it all comes together, the piece, the cast, the conductor, the production, and finally the audience, that is the key element that makes a night in the opera house really special. It doesn't happen very often, but when it does, <laughs> then we all say, oh yeah, that's why that we do That feeling, this. That's, what, yeah, that's what we're going for. <laughs> about the different voices in this piece and the initiative called Opera for All Voices as we've talked about many, many, many times. You have used the voice in this piece in so many different ways. We talk about why do we sing? We sing because we're praying. We sing to comfort like lullabies. We sing to show patriotism. 
And I think in this piece, without maybe intending to, but you've done that. You've like shown all the different ways we use our voices. We use them to show rage. We use them to show the, the tender, quiet moments. Well, I think, first of all, that's what opera does. But the words that are written and, you know, you have to have a great librettist to work with who sets a text that needs to be sung. Right. And I mean, this libretto could be read and it would be a nice play, but the sort of simplicity, the spareness of the language to get the maximum effect that allows the emotion and the meaning behind those short phrases is where the music can can take you to another place. And Kim is really judicious in the words she chooses and when phrases or words recur in different mm -hmm. contexts throughout a piece. So that helps me build a through line. Sometimes the most powerful lines to me require the least music and almost get chanted on a quiet mm -hmm. low note because it's like, takes you away from the artifice of opera to sort of that pure vocal expression of stuff that has a lot of meaning. And this piece has fear, rage, confusion, you know, hopefulness, anxiety, Resentment. bitterness, mm -hmm. all of that. And so every line, I mean, that, that's actually one of the challenges that mm -hmm. when in a scene of five minutes, you're going through a range of emotions, music takes more time. <laughs> Then like when right. you're having a conversation with a friend and you make a joke and then you stop laughing and you go back to the serious conversation and then you get mad, that can happen immediately. But music doesn't turn on a dime like that. So finding the way to have the music create a flow that allows for all of that is terrifying but wonderful <laughs> challenge. And then the other thing is choosing the orchestration mm -hmm. yes. so that I chose, because it was a small ensemble, Different instruments are assigned to different characters mm -hmm. and different motives so that those sound worlds belong to those people and their souls. So Abraham, as a Hasidic Jew, often is with clarinet. And Linda Morales, who's sort of the earthy, wise, but beleaguered immigrant woman, has the full complement of all the rich sounds. And Linda Larson, who's so nervous energy, has marimba and drums and, you know, percussive. Mm. So they each have their sound worlds and then finding the places to integrate those. I mean, we use orchestral chimes to create the sense of spirituality. Mm -hmm. That helps support what you were talking about, that, you know, the words and the different ranges of emotion. Yeah, I would just add something that's very basic. It's very fundamental about singing is that it's often done in unison. Mm. And the power of... Bunch of people getting together and singing the same thing is a really amazing and beautiful thing that I think needs to be celebrated. That unity, that unison, that power that comes from a collective focus and a collective purpose and how much we can accomplish in that way. But I think that that collective yearning is what is going on in our country right now. And that's what we're trying to convey through this metaphor of Postville about this collective work that needs to be done in unison to create a better place. One last thing. What are you expecting to happen as we get to this place on Saturday and this workshop? And there's an, there's audience. an audience. There's this magical thing that happens right before you present something. Sometimes I get that feeling when you hit send on an email but you already know what the response is going to be. And you already know that just this act of sending and putting this thing out in the world is you've, you've learned what you need to learn. And I don't know what all the 
responses are. I don't know what all the answers are, but I know that presenting it for the first time in its entirety to an audience is just going to be really galvanizing. We're going to learn a lot about what works and what doesn't and what needs to be tightened and where we can expand more. And that's why we do these things. I mean, I'm hoping that the things that are not yet clear that need to be tweaked, we can fake it enough that the audience will have a good experience and then we'll have till the due date sometime in the fall to really go and refine it and for me to lock in the orchestration so that the sound world's totally clear. Sometimes now I just put, we're tremoloing on these notes because the singers need them, mm -hmm. but how exactly those notes are going to be orchestrated and whether it's going to be a viola solo or a duet between two strings, I'm not going to spend a lot of time doing that until we know the scene is locked in. So the hope for the workshop performance is that we have enough of a through line that we've been able to get through this workshop that we can get that sense back from the audience, finish the work, get it in on time, have it produced and premiered and have everybody love it. And then there'll be lots of Linda Morales's and Larson's and Abraham's running around the country because we want to share the story. Okay. I mean, we want to tell the story. Reflecting back on season two of Key Change, Brandon, I feel like we took a map and we, we unfolded it and we laid out in front of us and we traveled. It's like we took that 50 states in 50 weeks trip across the United States. Right. And I'm exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> well, well I'm just thinking back on what the journey has been right. from season one to season two. But now that we're on the other side of season two, how much territory we've covered. Well, and we still have a lot more territory to cover. So I would take a nap and grab a bottle of water and buckle up. Where are we going? Well, we have a world premiere coming up this fall. Me too. And then we have two other workshops coming up for our two other pieces. We know that San Francisco is going to premiere Hometown to the World in yes. November of 2020. Yes, and then we are still discussing and bringing in new consortium members and but finding Brandon, new that's partners. It, but it's like, where are we going? We don't exactly, we still don't really know. No, isn't that exciting? <laughs> Actually, it is. It's like I'm being okay on, with it. It's, like it's like being on a road trip around the country without a destination in hand. Like, I love road trips. Yes, we're on that road trip. Do we have enough money? Who knows? We I might think... have to. We might have to wash dishes in the some like backwoods the, bayou. Do we get the cafe. car serviced? I. I Hopefully so. <laughs> Do we have enough snacks? I don't think so. That's okay. what gas stations are for. Will you drive? I will drive for some of it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> As you know, I'm a prolific napper. Well, <laughs> don't sleep while you're driving. <laughs> I'd love to nap. But we'll take turns. Okay, How's that? Fine. All, that's, right. That's, All right. That's good. That's okay. Good. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> Buckle up. Buckle up. <laughs> Key Change is a production of the Santa Fe Opera in collaboration with Opera for All Voices. We are produced and edited by Andrea Clunder at the Creative Imposter Studios. Our hosts are me, Brandon Neal, and Andrea Fellows-Walters. Our audio engineer is Cabby at Cabby Sound Studios in Santa Fe. Music by Renee Orth with cover art by David Towsley. This podcast is made possible due to the generous funding from the Melville Hankins Family Foundation, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, and an Opera America Innovation Grant supported by the Ann and Gordon Getty Foundation. To learn more about Opera for All Voices, visit us at santafeopera.org.
Time out. What? We're not being ourselves. Why? It sounds tense. It sounds tight to My me. My eyes hurt. I know. Here, <laughs> give me this. We're not being ourselves. No more paper. I thought the thing about Face being three. Me. I thought being three people was good. It was good. We're gonna start over. We're starting over. Okay, well we need to get this done because we gotta do. I know. I know. Lucy, what's so it? We gotta get on it. You okay. ready? <clears throat> okay. Oh, sorry. Do you know how to do putty? Do you know how to do that? Wait. Oh, yeah. That's right. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes you need to patty cake it. I love patty cake. 